episode 171, Nick Janssen, author of the book, Executive Loneliness. So that was my favorite mistake today, looking back at that and looking how brutally difficult it was to be leading organizations when you're not talking about how you're feeling inside. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Nick, his work, his book, and a whole lot more, check for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 171. As always, thanks for listening. Now here's Nick. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. And my guest today, uh, joining us from Singapore, is Nick Johnson. He is the co-founder and managing director of one of Asia's premier networking organizations. It's called the Executives Global Network, or EGN. Singapore. Uh, It's a caring peer group community that provides hundreds of executives a safe haven to share their challenges, receive support, and learn from each other. So before I tell you a little bit more, a little bit more about Nick, uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I thank you so much, Mark, for inviting me. I'm great. Thank you. I love uh, the description of your group because you know I, I want the podcast here today to be likewise a safe haven, a safe haven. It's a mistake in trying to pronounce a word there. Um, A safe haven for mispronunciation. How's that? Um, It's a safe haven, more importantly, for you to share, as I know you're going to be doing today, talking about challenges. And so um, thank you uh, for being here. So uh, Nick has a passion for mental health awareness um, that comes through his uh, lived life experiences. I think we're going to be hearing about that today. It it paved the way for Nick uh, to write uh, his his first book, number one international best-selling book, that was published in April 2021. It's titled Executive Loneliness, The Five Pathways to Overcoming Isolation, Stress, Anxiety, and Depression in the Modern Business World. Um, So in addition to the book, um, Nick's created uh, an online community where executives and business leaders can connect and and learn, um, reduce the risk of burnout and isolation. You can find that at www.leaders-anonymous.com. Com. And Nick's website, and there'll be links in the show notes to all of this, is nickjohnson.com, uh, um, a, a, a proper Swedish spelling of Johnson or, or Janssen, we could say, right? That's right, Mark. And uh, actually, I, I, I lived in Australia, Asia, and UK, and everyone pronounced Johnson differently. The most common have been to just say Johnson. Even in Sweden, we say Jonsson. Nick, I asked Nick, uh, he was pretty easygoing about um, <laughs> pronunciation, the name, uh, as long as, uh, it, we, we, you know, so um, we'll, we'll move on to, to more important things. And I think a very important topic today, um, an important story. So with me stumbling through uh, my attempts at uh, welcomes and introductions, Nick, um, we'll move past that. Um, looking back at, at your work and your life, um, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Well, being Swedes, we are not really known for being sociable people and talking too much, you know. And when the pandemic came, people were still 
not even socialize, social distancing more. We always did. We were quite distant. So I grew up never speaking really about my emotions and feelings. I didn't do that with my parents, with my family. And this has led me to always keeping also my emotions inside me. I did that as I grew up as a leader and in my workplace. So that was my favorite mistake today, looking back at that and looking how brutally difficult it was to be leading organizations when you're not talking about how you're feeling inside. So I, I'm, 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 thank you for sharing that. And I, I'm curious, um, you know, to hear so, some more detail of that, of like, as, as a leader, you know, working as an executive, what, when you're talking about hiding uh, or, you know, keeping emotions or, um, not sharing at the time what you were going through. What what were you going through as you know a successful executive that people didn't know about? Well, I was working in, in mainly Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand as an executive, and sometimes in a big company with more than one thousand staff. And then being a foreigner in this country, you know, you cannot speak the local language. You don't understand the legal system, the culture, and everything else. And you're trying to lead the people. So of course, you have a lot of challenges. But you had that in any leadership positions, you have a lot of challenges and with that comes a lot of feelings and you need to have a way to address the feelings. And uh, what I learned later on is that the natural is to have someone to talk about it and not covering it by yourself and just trying to soldier on and push through. So that is what that pain was just so big in Mark. And I can recall thinking back that this started in my childhood that you had these feelings, but because I didn't have a way to talk about them in my childhood, I didn't know. Therefore, I, I didn't talk to anyone in my adulthood either. And so what prompted you to start sharing more of your of your story and what you had been struggling with? Well, it, I had to be brought on my knees for that to happen, Mark. Uh, I, I kept it so much in, inside me that it actually led me to resign from a big position. And it led to my divorce with my ex-wife because also I didn't talk to anyone about the challenges we had there. It led to me to move from country and I isolated myself completely. And I, this was something that not even my parents knew about my close friends didn't know about I didn't talk to anyone about it so it it had to be almost that I was actually brought to my knees I was hospitalized I had fallen into alcohol addiction and that's how bad things had to go before I actually surrendered and it came I had to burst everything in one go and when I started to tell it to doctors and and, and psychologists and also in a, in a mental health related recovery program mm-hmm. And and beyond, so fine, you know, that hitting a point to ask for help, you know, and I think that seems like such an important. It sounds like such a simple step, but so many adults are afraid to ask for help on on matters that are small, or I think as as you were dealing with issues that were really really serious, important issues. Um, I'm curious if you tell us just a little bit more about kind of that point where you decided to, to, to reach out for help and, and what, what helped bring that to be. Yes. So actually in, in, in that stage, when I was so sick and it was actually in Indonesia and it's going back to 2015 this year, 
Uh, I knew that I couldn't also get much help locally in Indonesia. There was not enough English-speaking psychologists, mm-hmm. and the help wasn't there. The organizations I looked up on Google, the anonymous support organizations and so on, were not really operating there. Uh, so I knew I had to go back to a Western country. I started to look at the US, UK, Australia, or Singapore. And because I was in Asia, Singapore looked okay. So I was pleased to be eventually land an opportunity, a job opportunity in Singapore, and uh, knowing that there it should be, I should be able to get help. And, and when I started to go and see doctors and I got blood tests and they saw me, I was in a very, very bad shape. Uh, and at this stage, uh, Mark, I had uh, turned into a daily drinker. I was basically drinking alcohol to depress my feelings. And I had gained a lot of weight, and uh, it, I was not a pretty sight in any in any way. And um, re- reaching out to help, uh, re- reaching out for help. What you know? How how difficult was that process of getting things turned around and, and going in a more positive direction? The most difficult thing was just to get started, as most things in life, Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as I just had made a first effort, of course, a doctor was showing sympathy and, and, and showing me the result. Yes, I got scared, but someone listened to me. At this stage, I met the new woman who today is my wife, and uh, I started to tell her how I felt. And immediately after, I started just telling her. She showed sympathy. She came with me to the doctor. She came with me to my first uh, support group meeting. Uh, even though she didn't come in, but she came to me there and made sure it happened. And it went very, very quickly, just after about a week or two weeks of having actually shared my problem and discussed it, I was already better. And that was, uh, it, it was like a complete U-turn, basically. And so then, you know, back to the workplace setting, um, a lot of times people are afraid to ask for help at work. They're afraid to be vulnerable. We want to keep up, um, you know, this this facade of um, invincibility or success. Was was there a point where you started sharing what you were going through um, with people at work? Yes, it was, Mark. But it, it took a while. I was actually about one and a half year into my recovery, and let's call it this way: at uh, the first one and a half year of my recovery, it was between my wife, myself, my doctors my psychologist and my anonymous support group. And that's the space I was comfortable sharing my challenges. Uh, My parents had at this stage also found out about it, but not to the full extent. Uh, So, but then in in 2019, so I came into recovery in 2018. In 2019, a colleague and friend of mine in Singapore died of suicide. Uh, And this was a Western guy, an expat. uh, no one of us had any idea what was going on in his life. He had just come back from the base camp in Mount Everest, uh, which was one of the dreams of his life. He shared on Facebook uh, that he he was never happy in his life. He had a girlfriend he loved, and it came to a shock to all of us. And that was the day, Mark, when I decided to go uh, actually global with my story. I may immediately set up a fund to raise money about suicide awareness. I became a volunteer for SOS, uh, a suicide prevention agency in Singapore. And I made a LinkedIn post about my friend's death. And 
for the very reason that I realized that I could have gone down this path unless I decided to speak up. Um, so that was the game changer. And that's that post I made on LinkedIn and that the fund I, I started to raise money for went viral. And I was contacted from people all over the world. And before I knew it, I was live on radio talking about this and there was no turning back. Um, you know, I'm, it's, it's, it's awful to hear, um, you know, about, about your loss, um, to try to turn what happened and, and, and what you went through into something positive for others, I, I think is, you know, is very admirable. Um, so I appreciate you, um, you know, you, you, you sharing your story in, in different ways with us, Nick. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how much then as, as you've continued working to help others and writing the book, how, how much does all of that help with your own continued healing and, and growth? It's a huge part of my recovery, Mark. And uh, the reason for writing the book was it started already there when I went on radio and I was the questions I was asked on radio. And then uh, before I knew it, then it was in the local newspaper. They wrote the four pages feature about me in the local business newspaper here in Singapore. And as far as I know, it's the biggest mental health related piece ever written in, in the history in Singapore. So, and all these coverages, all these questions went through my head and I realized there's no one talking about this over here. So that's that's why I decided to take it to the next step. And, and because I had so much coverage and so many ideas around it, I put together a survey, which I took out to the community and, and surveyed senior executives. And then that led me to interviews. And before I knew it, that I had all this material for this book. So publishing it was natural to me because as I had made a promise uh, to my friend who, who's, who passed away, his family, that I was going to shout out this message loud. And what is a better way than writing a book in, in the, his memory? Uh, so that's, that's what I did. And that was my way then of uh, overcoming this mark. And for every time and thanking you also today for inviting me to talk about this, you're helping me to recover because I'm going through this again, and it is emotional, but it's positive emotional these days. And I, I, yeah, so speaking about this for me is the best thing that ever happened. And, you know, if, if, if the listener, um, you know, is, is feeling like they need help or they're struggling with, with any of these feelings, um, we certainly hope people can reach out to um, mental health professionals or, or to family or, uh, to suicide prevention hotlines, there are resources and people, whether they know you or whether they're strangers, there are people uh, who care about you and, and and want to help. And 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 um, so, thank you, Nick, for for your caring and um, willingness to, to to help others. Because you know, I think sometimes people might feel very alone in in feelings of um, uh, depression. Um, they may feel ashamed to bring it up. So I appreciate you having, having um, you know, the, 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 the strength to talk about um, what, what you had gone through. And so, you know, to, to that point, I mean, there's kind of common cliche, you know, people will, will say about executives um, it's lonely at the top. There, there, there must be some truth in that, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious from what you've experienced and what you've learned talking to others, Nick, what, what you frame in the book title as executive loneliness. How, how might that be different 
than um, you know everyday loneliness that anybody who's who's not an executive at any point. Um, you know, how is that executive loneliness different? Or well, well basically, it, it, you're right, Mark. It is lonely at the top, indeed. And the higher up you go up this hierarchy, there's less people at your level you can speak with. Uh, if you are, let's say, working in an office with 1,000 people and you are a middle manager, you might have one or two hundred or 200 people in different departments or across the organization who have a similar level of responsibility, same size of team, perhaps five, seven employees in the team who they manage, for example, and the challenges they have might be quite similar. So they can go for a coffee break and they can talk about it and, and do some sharings around that. If you are the top leader of the organization, you probably don't have anyone in your office with the same kind of responsibility. You have to go outside the organization to find those people uh, if you have the time and if, if, if you know how to do that. Uh, but in that sense, you're also paid and expected to be the one who, uh, who can make the big decision, who can handle the heat. Um, and that is where the challenge lies. And if you then don't have your support network outside the organization or somewhere, a coach, mentor, or perhaps a peer network or whatever it may be as a, as a resource for you, then that can be a very, very lonely place. And that is exactly, Mark, what happened to me. I was running an office with 1,400 people in a country where I wasn't born in the medical industry. And I didn't talk to someone about these problems. I kept them inside me. And that is exactly what men, too many executives are doing. And so it seems like there's that loneliness, but then there's maybe a, a, another level of loneliness of, of feeling alone in the loneliness. And, and that's where it seems like the, the group, um, you know, the executives global network um, is, is meant to provide kind of a forum for, for people to come together in that way. Is that, is Yes, and you have many of these uh, organizations in the U.S. as well. Most often they're called confidential peer networks or peer groups, and they are exactly for this reason. And uh, they are, of course, a, a, a proactive measure instead of a reactive recovery. Uh, it shouldn't have to go as far as it did in my case. You should be able to build up this before. You should perhaps have you know, a, a coach who you can work with. You should have your mentor outside the organization you should have your group if you have all these in place before you're going into these senior roles as you're progressing then then if if you do stumble and fall and make mistakes then you have someone to discuss with it and you can come back and address it right away before it turns into a, a deadly mistake which is almost worse in my case and as it was in my friend that sadly passed yeah um it seems like it might be a, a, a particular challenge with executives who have been successful. They have believed in themselves and their abilities to do things and to face challenges. Is it, it seems like it might be a challenge to get somebody then to be willing to reach out for help before they hit a point of, you might call it rock bottom. Is, 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 what, what, yeah. what are your experiences? I, I actually, in my book, I, I, I call it the, a smiling depression. And in what I mean with a smiling depression, and we see it among celebrities also, we see it among famous people because they need to keep the facade together. Uh, you can see them busting through and then many of the 
uh, artists or movie <laughs> actresses and so on that they make mistakes when it's just the pressure is too much. Uh, and, and that is similar for senior executives that they're hiding behind this smile, between behind this beautiful facade. And But not everything is what you expect it to be behind there. And when I talk to psychologists and therapists who I interviewed for my book, they say that uh, of senior executives, many of them are very insecure to the point where we call them insecure overachievers is another label. And mm -hmm. many, many are actually achieving so much because they have this inner insecurity that they have to constantly prove themselves and, and perform well to, to feel good themselves. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting dynamic. And, and then that drive could lead someone to say at various points of recognizing that they're, they're not feeling well, but I can do this. I can power through it. I mean, you know, that, that seems like that might be a common thought that would hold people back from asking for help. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if we haven't been trained to deal with the small challenges in our life, to, to discuss them openly, ask for help, then when we found with the big ones, we're definitely not going to share that. And, and I remember uh, I, I did a podcast in a different series um, with uh, a psychologist from UCLA, Bob Moore is his name. And, and he wrote a book um, about uh, mastering fear was the title of the book. And there can be fear as adults, we can have fear of all sorts of things. And there can be a fear of, you know, fear around asking for help. But I remember one of the key insights he shared was that when children are scared, it is a natural reaction to ask for help. They might ask their parents, they might ask a teacher, they might ask uh, another relative. And then at some point, whether it's through education or societal pressures, by the time we reach adulthood, unfortunately, it may be viewed as a, a sign of weakness to be asking for help. And, you know, I think Bob Moore has tried to encourage people to remember it is, it is both perfectly normal and extremely helpful, even just to make a statement, you know, that says, you know, I'm, I'm scared. And I know adults find that uncomfortable. Curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, Mark, absolutely. That makes sense to me. And uh, what we are taught in the recovery program is that if we cannot think of a person to take and ask for help, then ask a, a power greater than yourself uh, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. help and in the terms of a prayer. And it, it doesn't have to involve religion. It's just to believe that there's something bigger there. Of course, uh, many leaders are also atheists, so it's difficult if you start to involve religion. But if we can believe as a leader that we are not the center of the universe, that we are not running the whole universe, if we can just accept that, then at least we can hand this over to some power which is bigger than ourselves. And that's a big starting point, but it's a major milestone for mm -hmm. a leader with a, which many times have a big ego. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, Nick, to hear your thoughts um, you know, about the last two years uh, and, and COVID times of varying degrees of working from home, spending a lot of time on Zoom, even though on one level that might seem like connection, um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what the last two years have, have done in terms of, you know, is there increased loneliness at a, a deeper level? Well, I did a survey then in 2019 of the executives in Singapore 
where I asked them if they have ever suffered from loneliness or currently are, 30% answered yes. I did the same survey in December 2020, and the numbers had doubled to 59%. Uh, so indeed, uh, one year into the pandemic, they uh, were suffering uh, more than before. Uh, so I think that, that, that paints a picture um, because many of them had been in lockdowns, isolated. Uh, so indeed, uh, it was more challenging. If, but I should say also, Mark, that not everyone is uh, reacting in the same way. That's actually what I found when I dig deeper. People have gone into two camps. Uh, people who perhaps have faced a lot of challenges in their lives before have been striving through the pandemic because they saw it as not such a challenging thing. But people perhaps who were striving before the pandemic and who have not faced any challenges in their life in recent years, they, I have seen, have been struggling more than others. Uh, so that's one reflection uh, that I shared with a few people, and they also see that. Yeah. Um, I, one, one, one thought or another question that comes to mind here, I don't know if you've taken a look at or if there's research that looks at the difference in people who would describe themselves as introverts versus extroverts. So a lot of times people think leaders must be extroverts, but there are many executives who would fit the definition, definition of introvert, meaning um, that they draw energy from time alone, where extroverts draw energy from other people. I'm, I'm trying to even think through which group or it, uh, is 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 one of those two groups, and I realize it's a spectrum of introvert extrovert, but differences in terms of people's susceptibility to feelings of loneliness based on that trait. Do you know? Yes, definitely, Mark, and I've been looking into this as well. Uh, I'm an introvert myself, and and what I found in the recovery program is that many addicts are actually also introverts, and they perhaps find it most convenient comfortable to isolate themselves. But what I have learned about the introverts is that just because we are most comfortable to isolate ourselves, it doesn't mean it's best for us. Uh, I have to be very disciplined myself to book a coffee meeting or a lunch meeting every day if I can. So I force myself outside of my bubble, my comfortable bubble, to actually meet people and do that face-to-face. -face. So as soon as after the lockdowns, that was a very important uh, Thing for me personally, but I've seen it in the recovery program. The, the people who've been struggling are the ones who keep isolating themselves, who still, and I know people still today, two years now down the line, who are still isolating themselves mm -hmm. and they are not in a very good good space at all. Yeah. So Nick, you, know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, maybe a, a, a Swedish, what you described as a, a Swedish cultural tendency to, um, to keep things inside yourself. Uh, you know, Americans, I mean, as much as you can generalize, maybe Americans have a tendency to overshare um, at times. I'm, I'm, I'm curious as you've lived in different countries and, and maybe, you know, looked at um, aspects of this across cultures, are there certain countries where the executive loneliness problem tends to be more common or um, less effectively recognized? Yeah, well, I think oversharing is probably better than undersharing, I would say. But uh, yes, in Sweden, we, we didn't speak much about our feelings as I grew up. And also in 
Asia, it's the culture that you keep it inside the family. And uh, you might be surprised to hear that uh, even suicide attempts was only decriminalized in Singapore in 2019. So before that, if you had an incident in your family, perhaps a child who uh, was going through suicidal thoughts, you wouldn't report it because it would be seen as a crime. So that's how young the conversation discussing suicide or mental health related matters are here in Asia. It's very closed. And that's why I'm now working uh, in, as, a, in, as a volunteer on the grassroots level to try to break through this, that it is okay to talk about these conversations. So it's, it's very close society here in Singapore as well. And, uh, you know, I, I, before we wrap up, I mean, I think it would be good to um, hear more about or re reiterate some of the advice that you've shared, Nick, if, um, you know, if the listener feels like they're experiencing loneliness, whether we call it executive loneliness or not, or if, if, if you feel like a, a friend or a family member um, might be having some of those feelings of loneliness, what, what would you recommend? You, you've touched on this a little bit, but what would you recommend as um, some next steps that, or, you know, what, what's a good first step, realizing that first step can be difficult? Yeah, Mark, the, the first step, actually, in my book, I have written five steps of recommendation. And the first step is what I call taking stock. And if we think about it as a shop owner, for example, they would always do an inventory check once or twice a year. I say the first thing to do is sit down by yourself or with a coach or with a friend or a partner or a sponsor if you're in a mental health program and take out the pen and paper or a spreadsheet and do an on, honest inventory on yourself. That's the first step. And in my case, I had gained weight. I had stopped exercise. I was at this stage uh, uh, addicted to alcohol. There was uh, also relationships that were broken. And I brought all down these steps. So that was the first part. And then the second step is, who do I take these issues to? This to a doctor, this to an anonymous support group, this needs a psychologist, this needs my friend who's who goes on a jog every morning, you know. You just look at it like, like in that, that, that should get you going. Yeah. And, you know, I hope people will, uh, will, will check out the book and, and, and learn more about um, the, the, the stories and the research and the tips and recommendations. You know, I think one other question, you know, back to the idea of um, if, 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 if we, let's say we have this gut feeling um, of somebody in our life, we're like, well, something seems different. Something seems not right. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Are there particular signs that you would look for? Is it important to try to understand what they might be going through as executive loneliness or is it just more important to recognize hey something you you, you you i don't know how do you how do you approach somebody here let me reframe it in a different way how 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 would, what would you recommend how to approach somebody where you you you, you might sense something is 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 not right that might be uncomfortable to even try to bring up even if it's a loved one or someone close to you Yes, and you have to be quite careful in this instance because people get very defensive, offended, and they might even close and, and uh, escape more from you. So the best way, according to me, is to not face them in the eyes, especially men. Uh, go for a walk, go for a run, drive in the car together, 
do some kind of activity. My favorite activity is cycling. If I if I can get the friend out for cycling, and don't ask them. Share something about yourself. If you think that perhaps uh, they have some issue, be vulnerable first and open up a little bit about what happened in your life. So, for example, if I know that one of my associate friends is going through perhaps a divorce or I heard something about that, I will not ask him about that. I will try to go for a walk or something with this person and I will, I will lead into that topic and say that I went through a divorce a few times years ago and so on. And share, be vulnerable first and then the other person will most likely open up if they are ready. Well, I think, I think that's really good advice and... That's that's a good reminder of, you know, I think trying to lead by example, whether you're leader of an organization or leading by example with a friend or a colleague um, of showing that vulnerability, whether it's admitting that you're struggling with something or admitting that you've made a mistake. I think either way. Yeah, that showing that vulnerability helps someone else realize, even if they're not ready to talk about it yet. That that they're not alone. Right. Yeah. And the worst the worst would be if you go straight into the office and look them in the eyes and ask them about it. That is not the way to do it. Yeah. So that indirect, less threatening approach, that sounds like great advice of, like you said, not being directly face-to-face in a way that might be um, intimidating um, in terms of that topic. But maybe, you know, a final question about executive loneliness. What what are some of the, the signs that somebody might recognize in themselves or in somebody else to say that, you know, this is a, a particular thing they're struggling with. Well, if, for example, if you have a partner and they have a habit of, let's say they've been cooking Mexican dinner every Wednesday for a few years and suddenly they stop that. Or if your life partner been playing the guitars three times a week, they stop. Or in my instance, uh, I was exercising a lot. Suddenly I stopped. I didn't go for my jogs. I had no interest in going for jogging anymore. It just completely stopped. Uh, those are the signs to look out for. Or perhaps a mother who is losing interest in the child. Uh, if we see those patterns, then uh, that's a signal that something is just not right. Well, that, that again, that seems like great advice. And, you know, as you shared earlier, people can... Um, reach out and look for um, confidential peer networks and and to make sure that I have the connection straight between all of this is the executives global network one and the same as the the, the leaders anonymous network or are those two separate those are two separate so okay. executive global network is uh, an organization that I, I work with now uh, and they, uh, they are in 15 countries and you have many of these networks also in, in the US uh, the Leaders Anonymous is my platform, which I set up as a community related to my book. Okay. And I think earlier I may have ac- mistakenly, here's, here's another mistake. I think I may have sort of combined um, the two in, in, in what I was thinking, what I was saying. So thank you for, uh, for clarifying that those are two um, different um, you know, two, kind of, uh, two different resources for people and, and people might be able to go find their own local resources. So again, our our guest today has been uh, Nick Johnson. Title of his book, again, is Executive Loneliness, The Five Pathways to Overcoming Isolation, Stress, Anxiety, and Depression in the Modern Business World. Um, So so Nick, again, um, I'm I'm, I'm thankful that you would be willing to share your story. I I know that helps others. And um, 
really, really thankful that that um, that you were here with us today. Thank you so much, Mark, for covering this important topic. Thanks again to Nick for being such a great guest. Uh, for more information about him and his work, a link to check out his book, the article he mentioned, and more. Look for links in the show notes, or you can go online, markgraven.com slash mistake 171. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.